You're listening to a message from Ogden Church, a gospel-centered ministry for all people. We hope during the next few minutes you gain a better understanding of God's love expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. tell it's a new series when the speaker is never entirely sure when in the bumper video to go up. That's what uh, just happened there. Um, well, good morning. It's good to see you all here today. My name, if the, for those of you who do not know, is Jack Hickley, and it is my privilege uh, to serve here at Ogden as the pastor of Student Ministries. So it's good to, good to see you all here. I'm excited to be, uh, have the opportunity to speak out of God's Word here this morning. About four years ago, I had the opportunity to be the best man in a wedding of a close friend of mine. And this was one of the kind of first weddings of like a peer or a close friend that I'd actually had the chance to go to or be a part of. And the aftermath of that wedding can really only be described as weird for me personally. What happened in me after that wedding was, was a really awkward week. Weird is the best way to describe it. I suppose a more self-indulgent way in our kind of self-care culture is that for the next five days, I kind of wallowed in really unexplainable emotion because he was such a good friend and like they're just the best. And over that week, I had two very separate conversations. You see, about three days after the wedding, a, a really close friend of mine noticed that I was still like weirdly weepy after this wedding and was like, hey man, like I get it. It was like cool. It was a beautiful day. You probably need to move on. This is not an appropriate emotional response for a 26-year-old man to have to this experience or anybody. And when I heard that, I stiffened my back immediately. I'm like, you can't tell no, I, this, I, I am just feeling what I'm feeling. It's good. It's great. And a couple days later, I was on the phone with my mother having a similar conversation about, well, it's just, I've got a lot of emotions. And my mother, who well-intended, said, Jack, it is just okay, honey. You just feel whatever you have to feel for as long as you have to feel it. And in that moment, I realized it was time to be done. Because there were two pieces of kind of feedback given to my situation, right? One was hard, the other was easy. And when you're stuck between truth and ease, very rarely is the true option the easy one. Truth is hard. And this idea is sometimes uh, one that is difficult. For us in our world to accept, it's, it's something that feels like it's becoming harder and harder for us to speak truth because what happens in our world today is we want to broaden truth so that it is as inoffensive as possible to the largest possible group of people. And so what the result of that is, is now, you know, everybody has, you've probably heard this. Well, you have your truth. I'll have my truth. And no one's really able to say that one truth is wrong or the other truth is, is correct because it's your truth. So everybody gets to have something that is sort of true. And to use the infamous words of syndrome from Disney's Incredibles, when everybody's super, no one is. If everyone's true, it doesn't work. If every truth is true, it just cheapens the concept of what true is. 
You know, we're starting a series looking at truth and, and looking at the contrast between the truth that we see out in the world and the truth that followers of Jesus Christ are told comes profoundly from God through Jesus in the word of God preserved for us in Scripture. And as we start this series this morning, we're going to look at the fact that truth is not easy. We're going to be looking in John 17, and as kind of a quick parenthetical, if there are those of you who have been following along in our life journal reading plan that we started way back in January, where we just said we as a church are going to go through the Bible together, and there's this program. In fact, if you haven't been joining us in life journaling and are interested, there are some bookmarks you can still pick up in the back of the OC Hub. It is not too late to join and continue reading along with us. But if you've been following along, John chapter 17, where we're going to be camped out this morning, is in fact what the reading for the life journaling was today. And I think it's, it doesn't often pan out that way. There's, there's a whole lot of scripture and, you know, 365 days and how many Sundays, but it worked out today. And as we look at John 17, we're going to see that truth is not easy. And there are three kind of difficult truths we see Jesus wrestle with as he is kind of giving this prayer for his disciples. And we see that truth, separ- that how Jesus separates, how he relates, and the mission he articulates. Jesus offers difficult truth in how he separates, how he relates, and how he articulates. First, we're going to look and see how Jesus separates. This is a part of Jesus' high, sometimes called the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 9, read like this. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus starts kind of this portion of the prayer. The high priestly prayer is, is sometimes kind of broken into three parts. There's, there's the first bit, there's the middle bit that we're going to look at today, and then there's kind of a third chunk of it. We'll be spending our time in the middle part. And he starts by kind of talking about who, who is it he's praying for, right? He says, I've revealed you to those whom you've gave me out of the world. And this section, who he's talking about are his disciples. And specifically, he's talking about the 11 disciples that are sitting with him at the table. Judas Iscariot is already kind of wet off to start to kind of tee up the betrayal that's going to happen a little later on. And and we know that he's talking specifically about the 11 disciples in this situation because if we fast forward to verse 20, he distinguishes between, okay, I'm praying for them here. And in verse 20, it reads, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So he expands it eventually. However, in this section we're going to look at, he's, he's praying for a specific group of people. And in verse 9 specifically, you and I, as we read this, we are asked to sit in a sometimes uncomfortable place of trying to understand what it means when he says, I am not praying for the world, but those you have given me, for they are yours. And this can feel like a contradiction or something that is just, how can this possibly work, right? We had Mike stand up here, not not too long ago, quoting us, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. How then can God have this broad love for the world, but then say, I'm really only praying for this small or group? 
And this theological tension between God's kind of love broadly for the world and specifically for a chosen group, this can be very difficult for us. It's a tough thing to wrestle through. And when we look at Scripture, the the truth is that there are going to be passages on kind of both sides of the issue. Does God just love everybody with no condition? Are there people he maybe loves specifically that he's chosen uniquely? You'll see passages that will seem like they're really indicating both sides. So when you see a passage like this that can sometimes make us feel uncomfortable that maybe there are some that God's praying for and some that he's not, some that are his, some that are not in some sense, we need to remember that these things do not necessarily need to stand in such staunch contradiction that we throw out one in order to save the other. Don Carson, in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, he says, surely it is best not to introduce disjunction where God himself has not introduced it. Which is to say, if there seem to be passages that talk about God's love broadly for the world and other passages that talk about kind of God's love for the elect that is in something of a unique way, then if God has not told us that one of these things cannot exist at the same time as the other, no matter how tense and uncomfortable that makes us, that means we can sit in attention if God himself has not introduced a disjunction. We need not be the ones to do that. There will be a tense interplay. And again, why is truth hard? Because for many of us, it would be easy to try to just say, well, it's got to be just this or got to be just that. Do not be so intent on landing at your own personal truth that you reduce a God far greater than you into a box that feels most comfortable for you. There is a tense interplay between Jesus' unique love for his disciples and his broad love for the world like we see in John 3.16. And the challenge for you and me as followers of Jesus is we live into a tension that we may not fully be able to understand. That God can have a wide, broad, and a specific deep love. But this is difficult because, again, the way that he separates can make us feel uncomfortable. But we, we lean not on our own understanding, right? but as Proverbs says, we trust in the Lord. These two things that seem contradictory, if God has not introduced a disjunction, let's not create one for him. Right? As kind of a little parenthetical or an anecdote, off of this, when I was a young boy, I was in the Cub Scouts of America organization, and my father was our den leader, is what they called it. Right? You're in a little, little kind of squad of like 10-ish guys, and you had a den leader that sat over that. My dad was the den leader of, of me and my, my friends who were in this den. Now, it is fair to say that my father probably had a deeper level of affection for me than the other boys in the den. Right? We can all kind of agree with that, but that doesn't mean that he didn't care broadly about the people that he led. All of them. And so it's not necessarily contradictory, right? When we we hear that example, we're like, well, yeah, that makes sense, of course. Like anybody who's maybe coached their kid in a youth sport probably has a similar experience, right? You love your team, but of course you love your kid differently than you love the rest of the kids. That's just, those things aren't contradictory. In the same way, we can say without contradiction that God can love the world and specifically love in a different way, and those things can hold intention. You know, and for many of us, 
it does make good enough sense as an earthly parent, but, but when it comes to God, we, we just can be uncomfortable. Like, yeah, that makes sense for me, but God, isn't God supposed to be better than that or different than that? And we struggle with how there can be some, somehow a special love for some over others, the way Jesus separates out the world as, from the disciples that are his. But you know what I would challenge you all with this morning? is that sometimes when we struggle to wrestle over this tension or tensions like it, is it's often linked with our struggle to recognize where we stand before God. Right, because here's the truth. If we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, listen, I am basically good and basically worthy, and and generally speaking, everybody else is basically good as well, then when we see a passage that suggests that that God perhaps has a special love for those he has chosen uniquely, this can be offensive because it seems like he's just arbitrarily leaving some people aside. Because if we're all equally good, then how come some people don't get what other people have? But the gospel presents us with an entirely different picture of who we are. Which is to say that you and I are not remotely deserving of any kind of affection, broad or specific. And when we see our fallen nature before God, then it far less becomes how could God possibly choose some over others, but how could God possibly choose any at all? And it becomes more amazing that he has somehow a broad love towards the world and yet a specific love towards others. It all becomes amazing because when we see ourselves as completely helpless, as completely unlovable, yet God chose to love us, chose to send Jesus into that mess, that changes the perspective by which we view him with humility. Do you find yourself bitter and challenging with God? What would it look like for you to submit what you think needs to happen in a given situation to God and and replace your desire to control with with trust? No, I think attention can exist here too, right? This is not me saying, listen, all faith requires is for you to shut off your brain and just kind of just zen out. No, don't, don't do that and be uncritical per se. But what I am saying is that there is going to come a point for all of us where instead of demanding God give us specific explanation of why something is, we have to be able to say, God, it is enough that you say it is. But truth is hard. And we see that in the way that Jesus separates out his disciples from the rest of the world. Verses 10 and 12, we see a difficult truth also in the way that God relates. Jesus relates himself both to God and to his people. Verse 10 and following go like this. says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. The way that Jesus relates himself to the Father is something that cannot be overlooked. The way that he relates himself is, listen, you and I are one. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. We are of the same kind. 
Right? We see this, this theme of, of mutuality kind of throughout this passage, even to the same point that he prays for God to protect his disciples in the same way that he protected them while he was on earth. There is a similarness of kind in which Jesus relates what he can do to what God can do. Let us not forget, Jesus is fully man and fully God, and not one of those bends or cheapens to the other. He is not a bit less God. And for some of us, this is what we have to wrestle with. Jesus is not just some guy. He is not just some take-it-or-leave-it figure. You have to come to understand what does he claim to be true? How does he claim to relate to God? And then what does that mean for you? It can't just be a passive thing. This is a statement. This is a comparison with consequences. And where we stand on this matters. He makes a clear statement that connects him intimately with God. But we also see another interesting thing here in verse 11, right? He says, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. He doesn't only relate himself to God. Mutually, he calls for us to relate to one another in similar kind, in unity. And it's a unity that is on the basis of himself. He calls people together not kind of through anything less than who he is. This depth of relation we're called to is accomplished in and around Jesus you know, I was really wrestling with using an illustration from Star Wars because I feel like when I'm up here, I, I often tap the Star Wars well often because that's just sadly who I am. Uh, but in Star Wars, A New Hope, way back in the 70s, right, Luke Skywalker has to come with this tension when he realizes that the mysterious kind of mystical Jedi warrior that he's been searching for, Obi-Wan Kenobi, is in fact the same guy as this crazy desert hermit, Ben Kenobi, that he knew about, but he was like, they can't be the same guy. Crazy hermit, mystical warrior, they can't be the same person. And suddenly, he has to deal with the fact that these are one and the same people. He can't just say, well, he's this guy or he's that guy. It's both or it's none. And once he's come to that, it actually changes the way he's able to complete the mission he's been given to save the princess. When he goes to save the princess, there's nothing in and of himself that that makes the princess trust him. He says, listen, I'm here with Obi-Wan Kenobi, and it is that name that opens a relationship that wouldn't have existed prior. And it is for you and me with God, the, the two things have to occur. One, for some of us in this room, we have to, we have to get down and dirty and wrestle with, with the truth of who Jesus claims to be. Right, this is, again, what, truth is hard. Why is this a hard truth? Because there are plenty of people who want to take just kind of the divine out of Jesus, reduce him to some kind of baseline moral or ethical characteristics. You look at a passage like this, you're not really left with the room to do that. C.S. Lewis kind of calls it the the Lord liar lunatic kind of paradox where he says, listen, when you look at the breadth of who Jesus says he is, what he did on this earth, you can't say he was a good teacher. You you can say that he was crazy. You can say that he was intentionally deceitful, or you can say that he is who he says he is. But a good teacher is not an option available to you because good teachers do not claim that they are divine. 
And Jesus does. So for some of us in this room, we have to be willing to dig in and say, listen, if this is who he claims to be, then, then am I willing to take him at his word? And say, no, Jesus, you're not just some guy. You're not one among many. You are God. Even if that demands from me maybe more than I thought I was willing to give. You know, but there are others of us that need to wrestle with the claim of how Jesus calls us to relate to each other, right? Unity has been one of the most pervasive buzzwords in our society for the past, you know, year and a half, two years at this point. Everyone's calling for unity. And often what unity means is that one side is demanding utter submission underneath the view of another. And what this passage says is, listen, that unity hasn't come that way. True unity only will be found in and through the person of Jesus Christ, not through a, a, a submission to a particular or a subscription to a set of political ideals, be they conservative or liberal. It's through Jesus himself that we find unity, not only with a God who reconciles us to the Father through his blood and through his work on the cross, but with other people who stood under the same sentence and were redeemed by the same gift of grace. That's true unity. That's true equality, regardless of, of the way you think about politics, the way you look, how much money you make or don't make. The path to relating well to others begins in seeing how you relate to Jesus Christ. Finding solid and equal ground where your differences do not define you, but rather your status as a chosen and redeemed child. Truth is not easy because of how it separates. It's not easy because of how Jesus relates to God and calls us to relate to each other. And then kind of the last truth that we're going to examine this morning, we see that the truth can be difficult because of the mission that Jesus articulates in verses 13 through 19. It reads like this. It says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth of your word, by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And there are two things that we, we see going on about the mission that Jesus articulates. And the first thing is that Jesus says very blandly, listen, I've given you their word, I've given them your word, and listen, the world is not going to think favorably of them. The world is going to hate them, is what it says. And I think too often for, for people in kind of the Christian sphere today, we look at kind of the, the pressures that we see from the world around us and, and we kind of feel like it's our job as the church to try to find a way to bend our faith in line with the pressures we see around us. And what Jesus says is, listen, when there's pressures coming from outside, when it seems like what the plain reading of God's word is is going against the grain of what's happening in the world, that is not a sign that it's time for us to bend God's word. He says, listen, this is going to happen. Jesus says plainly, the world is going to hate you. So then we, 
as followers of Jesus Christ, should not see and look to the tension and the differences that we see between what the culture tells us we should do and what Christ calls us to and say that it is somehow God's job to bend in line with what we see around us. So when we watch these values be challenged in the public square, it should neither be a surprise nor should it be something that we try to reframe to be less offensive than it is. But then there's the other part of the challenge. In verse 15, it says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil one. He says, listen, you, the world's going to hate you. That's part one. And, par, and then for many of us, the response is, if the, if the culture and the, and the church are going to be opposed, then the church needs to withdraw itself from the culture and form ranks like a phalanx, and no one's going to be able to get in. A phalanx, as a quick parenthetical, is a Greek defense structure where they would link their shields so that nobody could come in. I recognize that is not a common knowledge situation. Wanted to define that real quick. We feel like we need to withdraw and what Jesus says is the opposite. He says, listen, I'm not asking that you take them out of the tough stuff. I'm asking you that you be with them through it. We are called to step into difficulty. And what this means is coming to Jesus it doesn't mean you're in for a miraculously easy life. It doesn't mean that we get to check out of the difficult tensions that we feel around us. William Barclay, in his commentary on, on this passage, he says that he, being Jesus, never prayed that we might find escape. He prayed we might find victory. Amen. The kind of Christianity which buries itself in a monastery or covenant would have seemed no Christianity at all to Jesus. But this is challenging. Because we all have a very natural knee-jerk reaction to evade difficulty. If you have any kind of questions about whether or not this is true, just go to any baby getting a shot in a doctor's office. They're not into it. Truth be told, none of us are. We just get better at dealing with it. If something is hard and not perfectly fulfilling on this earth... We think to ourselves we're not supposed to be there when God is maybe calling us to dig in. There was a young man I knew, and about five years ago, he was right out of college, and he got a job at a psychiatric hospital, right within his field, right what he wanted to do, except that an entry-level job in a psychiatric hospital is not sitting and dealing with patients. It's cleaning. It's taking care of tough and difficult stuff. His wife worked with me in a church in Pittsburgh doing student ministry, and sometimes the optics of student ministry can make it feel like it's a pretty easy job. Spoiler alert, it's not. But this friend of mine looked at his wife and, and her job and said, maybe that's what I'm called into because I, I can't stand cleaning crap off the walls anymore. I remember his wife told me that. I said, well, he's just tired cleaning the crap off the walls, it, it couldn't possibly be meant to be this difficult. I looked at her and I said, you, you are aware, of course, that ministry is just cleaning a different kind of crap off of different kinds of walls, right? <laughs> but he interpreted the difficulty and the discomfort he felt in the moment as obvious sign that he wasn't supposed to be there. And in fact, the, the, the opportunity came for him to come on to a church staff and he lasted about a year before he realized that this was difficult too. And then he went to a different calling and a different one. If you and I look for the path of least resistance at every turn, I can promise you, you will find yourself on a fairly dissatisfied track for a 
fairly long time. Because when we run in search of a life with only perfect ease and comfort and fulfillment, then we're going to be dissatisfied because the truth that we see in Jesus is that far from removing us from difficult situations, he calls us in and through them. And so my question for you is, where in your life are you looking to get out where God is calling you to dig in? Where right now in your life, maybe a job, maybe a marriage, a relationship, where are you trying to look for a way out where God's calling you to dig in? Do you look for escape or do you look to Jesus? Because if your answer in these situations are, this is just not giving me what I feel like I should get in this moment, then guess what? You will never be satisfied. It is only when we look to the person of Jesus as someone who has filled everything for us from what we did on the cross that we can go and step into and through the hard situations that he has called us to. The challenge of the gospel is just that. Again, William Barclay in his commentary on John, he says, Christianity, it does not offer an easy peace, but a triumphant warfare. Where is God calling you to dig in? He promises it won't be easy. He does. But he promises that your ultimate victory is secured elsewhere, on the cross. It's not necessarily wrong to say that God wants good for you. I'm not not saying that. But where we go astray is when we fail to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the great good that he has given you. And no better one could be offered than that. And that he did not withhold his son from you. When we see that truth, then we know, listen, my victory is found here. And so I can dig in. Because I know my victory has been bought. Truth is not easy. It can challenge things that might have been easier or more comfortable to believe about ourselves. This is true. And you know, when we are faced with something uncomfortable, it can lead us to ask, listen, okay, I'm not sure I like what I'm hearing right now, but maybe I just can't trust That this is actually true, actually what God is saying. And when Jesus speaks these words, his prayer and promise, it anticipates the focal point of why he is here on earth. Verse 19, let's read that again together. It says, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. What Jesus is pointing to here is he says, Listen, it's going to be difficult here. But I know the ultimate difficulty that's been set aside for me. This, this word sanctify, it's kind of often a churchy word we don't take time to, to really dig into. What it essentially means is to be set aside for a special purpose. And the purpose that we see throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus has specifically been set aside for is the cross. And so he says, for them, for these people, I have been put aside to die. Why? That they too may be truly set aside. Through the blood. So when we ask the question whether or not we can trust the difficult truth of God, you can be greeted. This is the good news. You can be treated or greeted with the reality that Jesus walks towards the cross, towards ultimate suffering. For the sins of the world, not for anything he did wrong. He didn't do anything. But he walks towards that difficulty that you and that me, that I, might be set apart and brought back into a right relationship with God that our sin destroys. 
We can step toward the difficult implications of this truth in the world because we believe that Jesus first stepped towards the greatest difficulty we could face on our behalf. Now, for some of you, this is, this is challenging because you're honestly too well acquainted with all the reasons that God should want to stay away from you. And so you resist the joy of accepting that he has come and done something amazing on your behalf. And accepting the truth that in coming to him, that he can forgive all the ways that we have broken. That you could find your sins paid for. For some of you today, you need to hear again the invitation to come to Jesus, confess that he is God, that we are broken, and then receive the acceptance and forgiveness that was achieved on your behalf through the cross. For others of us, the difficult part is that we feel as though we can save ourselves. You know, we see people consistent, constantly anxious and wondering if they've done enough for God or will find themselves ultimately disqualified on Judgment Day, whether they've really kept up what God needs from them, and they're not living into the truth that we stand only on the basis of the work of Jesus, only that. And if it's Jesus and anything else, then it's nothing. And so while this does not mean that we do not hope to grow in personal holiness or spiritual maturity, what it does mean is that we continually drive ourselves not towards our works or our disciplines or the events that we attend, but back to the cross, to the person of Jesus, whose suffering alone makes us whole. Truth is not easy, but truth is good. Truth will remind us how we fall, and that the road ahead may not be easy, but it will remind us also where our hope is found and what true love is. Let's pray, and we'll close. God, in a world where truth seems like it's fraying at the seams, may you remind our hearts that there is a strong and stable truth to be found in your word and who you are. And God, I pray for my heart, for those in this room, God, that you would remind us that though truth is hard, truth is good, and it is good because you are good and you have gone before and stepped towards the hardest truth of suffering for sins not your own, that a broken people might be restored to you. And God, I pray that today there might be a stirring in our hearts, drawing us back to the truth of our need, not for more good things to do or things to feel insecure about, but to find you again and the truth of what you did that we could not do on that cross. And we pray the strength to look there and to experience your love in new, fulfilling ways. And we pray it in your name, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Truth is hard, but truth is good live towards that truth this week. Thanks for being here. We'll see you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Please join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 or 11 a.m. If you'd like any more information about Ogden Church, just visit our website at ogdenchurch.org or Facebook.